loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Alia Voltz. Alia is the author of the new memoir, Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. She's a home, homegrown San Franciscan whose work has been published in the Best American Essays 2017, The New York Times, Bon Appetit, Three Penny, Penny Review, Salon, and many other places. Her unusual family story has been featured on Snap Judgment, Criminal, and NPR's Fresh Air. Alia has received fellowships by the McDowell Colony and the Ucross Foundation, and has twice been awarded the Oakley Hall Memorial Scholarship from the Squaw Valley Community of Writers. She was runner-up of the Moths Grand Slam Championship in 2014. Welcome, Alia. Hi, thank you, Cheryl. So good to have you. And uh, I really, really enjoyed your book. Uh, I'm, I'm really um, excited to be here talking with you about it. And uh, I, when something so presses my personal buttons, I guess, or intersects with my personal experience, I like to say it up front, which is that the period of time in San Francisco that you're talking about, um, you know, from like mid-70s uh, through now, uh, intersects with my period in the same part of the world. And so many of the things you talked about are personal experiences for me. And I just really appreciated how you put that in a context. I'm so glad it rings true for you. Absolutely rings true. And, and um, you know, we'll talk more about it, but the intersection between kind of the hippie influx and the um, what we'd now say queer infl influx uh, stood out so much. You know, I came to, to live as a free lesbian as, as an 18 year old in 1971. And it mm -hmm. sounds like your mom came out to live as a free hippie a few years later. Yes, I, I think by that point, San Francisco had a reputation for being the place to come out of the closet, whatever your closet was. It was a place that you could come and experiment with lifestyles that uh, were unaccepted at home. And so people came for all sorts of, of looking for all sorts of new lifestyles, but that impulse was the same for a lot of folks who moved out in the early 70s. You know, one undercurrent that I that I uh, resonated with in the book, more as uh, wondering about my own kids <laughs> than maybe the quite the experience I had, is this sense of um, why didn't we know how dangerous it was, or you know, <laughs> uh, how could we have? Um, but I think that the truth is that the way I perceived that period was it wasn't arrogance it was more like um we don't believe the power structures and what they're telling us and there was sort of overall in the people i knew a step away from what had always been thought to be true um, absolutely i i think that the hippie movement although in san francisco the 
summer of love. And that's, I, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes. The summer of love <laughs> was something of a, of a media invention. And so people came looking for the pictures they saw in Time magazine. Uh, and a lot of people got out here uh, and found that it wasn't as idyllic as it might have appeared from a distance. Um, there were a lot of struggles. And by the early 70s, the hate, hate Ashbury, which had was, of course, presented as the epicenter of that, was really in ruins. Uh, and hard drugs had come in and the lifestyle backfired on a lot of people. But what I think was interesting about that time is that it drew from all the nooks and crannies all over the country and the world, people who were interested in experimentation. It brought dreamers to this part of the country. And so even if what people were looking for was not what they found, a lot of folks stayed and built something new. So a way that I think about it sometimes is that if, if the 60s are a box of bright, colorful crayons, the 70s are the sketch pad. That was when the mores had been shaken off and people felt free to experiment. And some of those experiments backfired and some were wonderful. And some, you know, for instance, the freedom in the, in the LGBTQ community, um, maybe a little more the men than, than the women, but the freedom and mm -hmm. experimentation there is absolutely no way that it could have been predicted how that backfired oh, uh, with AIDS. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was not on anyone's radar whatsoever that that, that, that might be the result. Um, and, but it wasn't a result. It was a, co, uh, a cohabiting <laughs> circumstance, I guess you could say. But, um, you know, right. still... The virus simply found its mo the, the population that would be most vulnerable to it. And there was an, ex an explosion. But of course, the virus is not the consequence of the lifestyle choices. Of but course. it certainly took root in that community and it was devastating. And partly, as you rightly point out, I think, um, you know, if I it's been coming to my mind a lot because we're we're living in shelter in place right now in the era of covid uh how people are saying are working hard and saying we'll have a uh we'll have a um uh you know immunity for this i'm blanking the word right now uh in a year oh a vaccine a vaccine thank you uh well there still is not a vaccine for AIDS and there was such a slow response, mm -hmm. of course, because more uh, largely gay men were getting it at first than anyone else. And, uh, yeah, and vulnerable populations in general. It, it took root first among gay men and intravenous drug users and also a, a cohort of uh, Haitian immigrants. And it was very, easy for the conservative and moralistic Reagan administration to dismiss these large swaths of people such that Reagan himself didn't give his first speech on AIDS until 1987, by which point more than 20,000 Americans had died of the disease. Um, but it is, you know, all, all blame aside, it is also a very complicated virus. Mm. And 
the scientific community still has not, as you point out, come up with a vaccine. What they did come out with were a class of drugs, the protease inhibitors, which hit the market in 1996, that have been able to extend lives so that people living with HIV can have long lives that are um, filled with quality and good health. And, and um, so the threat changed. But that was 15 years into what right. had by that point become a pandemic. Yeah, I was recently in a car with my daughter who's just turned 27 and her good friend who's uh, uh, maybe a year or two older than her, but a young uh, gay man. And he was talking, talking about PrEP access mm -hmm. to prevent contracting AIDS at all. And mm -hmm. I was thinking that is a complete, and he was uh, objecting to the fact that most people he knows have trouble getting it because it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, that's a really different universe, though. <laughs> you know, yes. even though there's still a problem, um, the scope of it is so, so different uh, yes. or the, and, the and ways it shows itself. Yeah. And and with the the cost of prep that, you know, then the socioeconomic conditions come in and it's absolutely a question, of course, of, of um, there are racial issues that come up at that point. And, and it is issues of, of, of gender identity also. Yes. Uh, yeah, you know, right. uh, you're significantly more at risk of being poor if you're transgendered. And then mm -hmm. if you're also of color, <laughs> it just topples on top of each other. So right. we've, we skipped right past what, uh, you know, of course, is the heart of the book, which is this childhood where, where your mom made and sold marijuana brownies. And of course, it intersects so deeply because of the ways that she did help people during that period of AIDS and, and did um, come to be deeply embedded in that community. Um, but I wonder if you could, I was thinking the whole time I was reading, wow, it's not all children that are willing to dive into who their parents were so deeply. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of awestruck. So I wonder if you could talk about that part of it for a bit. <laughs> or we can I mean that'll be probably a lot of the show but uh you know that that just that aspect of how did you decide to and how did you have the courage to take such a deep dive into who your parents mm -hmm. are and were well in fairness it started out as a shallow dive <laughs> <laughs> and got deeper over time I, I I have to say I spent uh almost 12 years on this book off and on and if I had known from the outset how hard I would end up working on this story, I don't think I would have started. Uh, <laughs> now that it's done, I'm glad that I did. But I knew that my family story was unusual. That was obvious from really very early on in my childhood. I, I could tell that my home life was different, even though I, uh, to protect my parents, I had to keep our home life rather secretive. But it was easy to see that uh, what I encountered when I went home was not the same as what my classmates did. So I grew up with this unusual framework. I want to say that I always felt, even as a child, lucky that I, uh, to, to grow up in an environment where I was surrounded by such creative, colorful, vibrant people. And it was a very loving environment. I wasn't neglected. There was no, uh, 
uh, I don't I don't feel I feel that I was helped more than hindered by the ways in which my family was unusual. Um, but it, it was certainly unique, you know, and so <laughs> I started recording. I, I um, also the uh, the storytelling was so much a part of our environment. So people, customers would come over and end up staying for hours and sharing anecdotes. And during the AIDS crisis, there was a lot of grieving going on in the household. Um, but it, our household always was the center of this uh, really vibrant community. So I started collecting those stories. And one thing led to another and I ended up uh, recording hundreds and hundreds of hours of oral history from people who were involved in some way with sticky fingers or who were touched by sticky fingers brownies. And those subcultures were all that people were involved in on their own. Everybody was an artist of some kind or an activist of some kind. It was really such a, a frothy and needy time in the city. Those subcultures were fascinating. And so I became very interested in collecting those stories and preserving the history, uh, especially as, um, this generation is getting older and people are passing on. And so there's a realization that when people pass on their stories, go with them unless you mm. take the time to record them in some way. So that became the project. And it was only years later that uh, I reframed it as more of a traditional memoir and cultural history. And I assume that as you were speaking with your parents and and uh, asking other people their stories around your parents and all of that, that at some point they knew that you were trying to write about them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> One would assume they had to know that at some point. Um, uh, how, how did they take it? I mean, were they supportive? You would imagine, but it also is a little bit of a risky business because at the time all this was happening, of course, very illegal. Yes. Uh, I did not start seriously pursuing this until I was sure that the statute of limitations on any crimes had expired. So there wasn't going to be risk of legal repercussions. Um, there might be more there, there are other kinds of repercussions. Of course, my mom is an art teacher and she was concerned about how, um, for example, the people who sign off on, on the grants that she needs to teach, uh, to teach in Juvie Hall where she runs a program, how that might be taken. But so far mm -hmm. the response has been really positive. I mean, this was so long ago. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, uh, cannabis in California is legalized for adult use now. The, the, even though it's still completely illegal on the federal level, the public sentiment around it and the laws on the state level have all changed 180 degrees. So I, I was able, you know, I was able to, 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 to be pretty sure that they wouldn't suffer legal repercussions. And on a personal level, I mean, people were eager to share their stories, even my parents. And of, mm -hmm. of course, there were, there's material that's uncomfortable for them, but, um, but carrying, a, carrying stories like this uh, can become something of a burden if you have no one to share them with. And so I found that people were very forthcoming and, and eager to talk about it, eager to remember, and eager to remember their loved ones lost. There is that aspect of um, being almost... Uh 
a memorial to certain people that you encountered in your childhood and who have who who died during AIDS and at other times that they are kind of captured in a way by your book and in quite a lot of beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, Thank you. I never I never once felt you were being hard on anybody. <laughs> you know, even when you were telling things that were difficult. Um, it was very felt very loving to me. But Thank I you. could still imagine there would be a little bit of uh, I, I've been working on some memoir type writing myself and I know sometimes I get snagged. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, not not because people wouldn't feel okay about me telling the story but because i'm afraid of telling it in a way that would hurt or yeah. you know <laughs> so i i could imagine it took something to move past that very true i mean with with memoir writing i it's important to remember that nobody is honored by a lie it's important to get to the truth of of things even when that hurts and it's also important to recognize and acknowledge on the page that everyone's truth is different and so you can explore an event from several angles and let and let each of the different versions of the story sit on the page all exist and i think that was an important part of the process for all of us as well hmm. yes well it's getting to be about time for our first break and that seems a good place to take it so let's go to a break and come back in a few minutes and listeners you'll find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice america to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sign up for my email list, and uh, to find Alia Volts, go to uh, Alia. Is it AliaVolts.com? I'm sorry. AliaVolts.com. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I thought. It's A L I A V O L Z. dot com. Back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Alia Voltz, the author of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. And um, I wanted to move forward in this in this uh, time to talk about um, the the unique angle on everything that went on in San Francisco and the gay community um, that your that your family had, uh, and of course, uh, you know, I I realized as I was as I was reading that. That early 70s time when I first came uh, was innocent in a way we didn't know it was mm-hmm. <laughs> until later. Um, yes, there were, I can remember very oppressive things happening and we were fighting for certain rights and etc. But there was a sense of some safety in this area. And it occurred to me that that probably ended in some substantial way when Harvey Milk and Moscone were were murdered or assassinated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought that, I mean, that was such, that had such a huge impact. And then, of course, subsequent events did as well. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about that, because... Um, there were political times, you know, Briggs, Anita Bryant, protests, but we sort of protested by partying <laughs> to an extent, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but those, that was, um, there was no way to party about those things. Is it, you know, we were, there was so much anger. Yeah. And, um, um, and, and outrage and, and real pain and hurt. Uh, we kind of lost our party for a while there. <laughs> yeah. I, the, so the Sticky Fingers Brownies evolved very much in step with uh, what was then called gay liberation in San Francisco in the 1970s. We, of course, saw the, the rise of Harvey Milk, and he became one of the first openly gay elected officials. And there was a very liberal mayor at the time, Mayor Moscone, who sought to align himself with uh, the newly powerful gay crowd in San Francisco, specifically specifically among men who had more financial uh, weight at the time. Um, And then when Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone were both assassinated on the same morning by a former police officer, a former city supervisor, and former firemen all at the same time, all rolled into one delightful character uh, <laughs> of Dan White. I shouldn't and, laugh, but I can't help it. I know. <laughs> no one could make it up. Right. That day, the day that the news of the assassinations spread through the city, I, I think it, it really rocked San Francisco to its core. Uh, it was so shocking. And it happened in broad daylight right in the morning. And the spontaneous response um, in both within the LGBTQ community and, um, and allies and all kinds of people gathered 
in the Castro where Harvey used to speak and walked as a group of, that was estimated at, at about 30,000 people for a candlelight vigil. And it, it, was, it was peaceful, it was very, uh, very sad and also very moving. The mm -hmm. speakers who uh, came to give impromptu speeches about Harvey and, and Mayor Moscone found themselves tongue-tied. And then finally, someone held up a recording to the microphone, a tape-recorded speech of Harvey Milk. And it just, it rocked the crowd. It was a very powerful moment, I think. And there was a broad assumption that Dan White was going to pay for this. He was going to do hard time. How could he walk in at 10 in the morning and shoot two publicly elected sitting politicians, admit to it, turn yourself in and not do hard time. Uh, but he got off with manslaughter, which had a maximum uh, a maximum sentence of eight years. He ended up serving five. And the community was outraged in ways that are, I think, familiar to us today. And so right, right now with with the um, massive demonstrations after uh, the most recent loss with George Floyd's murder, just to place it in time since people listen way after we have this interview i think that's the the backdrop that i was that i was feeling so much as i was reading mm -hmm. um the, yeah. the kind of explosion of of hurt and outrage um when something just is too much when the justice system simply fails to do its job or refuses yes. to do its job what what can people do in the face of that so if i can i'd like to read a short excerpt from that part of the book absolutely Okay, uh, so this is right after the verdict has been announced, the manslaughter verdict. Some 5,000 people marched to Civic Center, chanting, Dan White was a cop and avenge Harvey Milk. The crowd broke through police lines, tore the elegant ironwork off the doors of City Hall and used it to break windows. They set dumpster fires and trashed nearby buildings. Police attacked with tear gas and batons while rioters threw rocks and bottles. Several policemen had to be rescued after getting trapped inside City Hall when the crowd surrounded the building. By the end of the night, 12 squad cars had gone up in flames, their melting sirens moaning like wounded animals. Reporter Warren Hinkle was on Castro Street. This is Castro Street, by the way, is about two miles from City Hall, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So Warren Hinkle was up on Castro Street when rogue squad cars rolled up later that night. The cars were sardine full of cops, he wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle. Three in the back seat, sometimes three in front, never mind that many of the people who'd stayed in the Castro were the ones not rioting at City Hall. Officers were heard yelling bonsai as they charged into the Elephant Walk bar. Cops bludgeoned patrons and employees, broke windows and chairs, and shattered the artful elephant motif stained glass, raining shards onto those cowering behind the bar. As one bar, bar patron who was hospitalized with five broken ribs and a partially collapsed lung commented later, they were down here to crack a few heads open. A former police inspector who tagged along with Warren Hinkle that night found Captain George Jeffries directing his officers and confronted him. It was all quiet before you sent these guys in here. You're provoking these kids and putting a lot of cops in danger. What kind of police work is this? 
We lost the battle at City Hall, the captain snapped. We aren't gonna lose this one. Most news outlets reported that 61 police officers and more than 100 civilians were injured that night. The Police Officers Association claimed it was the other way around with twice as many cops hospitalized as civilians. Mayor Feinstein, this is of course, Senator Feinstein now, uh, thought the manslaughter verdict was a miscarriage of justice, but she could not abide rioting in her city. She gathered prominent gays and lesbians in her office the next morning. Permits had already been issued for a street par party to celebrate Harvey Milk's birthday later that night, the first, his first birthday after his assassination. According to activist Cleve Jones, Feinstein had assembled them to explain her decision to summon the National Guard. Convinced this would only escalate violence, Cleve dissuaded her by lying. I have 500 trained monitors ready to keep the peace on Castro tonight, he bluffed. If you can keep the police away, there will be no violence. The fib worked. Activists spent the day teaching last minute volunteers how to monitor a crowd. They planned escape routes in case people needed to scatter. Finally, Cleve marshaled the ultimate peacekeeper, I'm sorry, the ultimate peacekeeping weapon. He asked the disco star Sylvester to perform. That night, some people showed up for the celebration wearing helmets and carrying baseball bats. The mood was tense, but when Sylvester started to groove, the crowd got high and danced in the street. The cops maintained their distance and no harm was done. At one point, someone in the crowd burst out screaming, he's dead, Harvey's dead, and he's never coming back. People surrounded and embraced the man, holding him as a group while Syl Sylvester led the crowd in singing happy birthday to Harvey Milk. I'll stop there. Hmm. Uh, but the White it's Night Riots changed the power dynamic in San Francisco and um, the police didn't harass guys up on Castro Street so much after that. It, it, there, there had been a, a, a very intense rash of violence in the wake of the assassinations that was reported on widely and that began to abate, it, it shifted the power dynamic. And, and as we see, of course, it was true that the police staying out of it was the best chance for peace. I've been thinking about that so much the last few weeks. Right. That, that in fact, the absolute least helpful response to what's happening is armed police presence. <laughs> it's a little know? obvious, doesn't it? <laughs> it seems a little obvious that when right. when that's already the issue to start with, uh, it's going to inflame. Whether that's intentional or uh, just an automatic response, we'll we'll leave that for another day. But it certainly is not helpful. Yeah, and um, any group of of people who are um, oppressed simply by being members of a certain group are going to eventually react. To me, yeah. that's a very psychologically normal, it's actually got something to do with grief since we're here talking about grief. Exactly. Uh, but you, you, had, you had a kind of, uh, I don't know how old you were at that particular moment. Were you aware of all that going on? Oh no, I was an infant um, at that time. So I would have been about a year and a half. 
Um, so I didn't experience that firsthand. Um, this is this part of the book is of course driven by research and, and interviews, but I was very interested in this idea of collective grief, which is something that we're going through again now, mm, and collective absolutely. trauma, and what happens when that meets an oppressive force, and it it overflows at times, and of course it's complex, and of course rioting and looting have. Uh, are all, can also damage the communities where that's happening. And, you know, the whole situation is very complex. But there is a moment where the grief transforms into a kind of power. It becomes a motivational force. Absolutely. And this happened in the, in the wake of, of Harvey Milk and George Moscone's assassinations. And it happened again in the completely, in the, in the, the the next section of my book that deals with AIDS, um, when truly that terrible mass mourning did transform into political energy that changed laws and changed America. And changed the community because uh, as you mentioned in the book, um, the, it was a pretty, especially gay men and lesbians were pretty divided before all this. Uh, in, you know, there were two separate communities, we'll put it that way. And um, the combination, I think, of these events, um, you know, the assassinations, the riots, the, um, we, I think we, and then AIDS, I think we saw how much we were connected and how much our fates were connected. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's very true. You know, we use the initialisms today, LGBTQIA+, it, it continues to evolve. But that, that kind of um, an, an inclusive initialism like that, or uh, the modern use of the word queer, um, is really a phenomenon that arose out of AIDS activism. And before that, it was gay and lesbian and even the B, the LGB, the B for bisexual wasn't included until the late 80s. So all of that is, is that way of thinking of this very diverse group as a single power block is a phenomenon of, of the, AIDS, uh, the AIDS era for sure. And there were, I have to say there were whispers. For instance, I got, I got to uh, the San Francisco area in 1971 Mm -hmm. uh, I, I attended the second, um, what now is called pride event. Uh, it started in 70. I was mm -hmm. here in 71. I went every year, even though until I think the Briggs initiative that tried to outlaw, um, gay people in schools, mm -hmm. uh, and Anita Bryant's campaign until then there were more men than women by far. Uh, mm -hmm. But there were women there, you know, there, there are spaces in which we saw the connection, but it, it wasn't how those communities were living, I think, until these, these huge events. And of course, you're a better researcher than I. So my memory may be faulty, but that's how I remember it. That, that aligns with my understanding of it. Uh, there's, you know, nothing uni unifies a community like a shared enemy, <laughs> um, <laughs> so for true. better or worse. But uh, Anita Bryant, um, for as reviled as she was and for as much harm as she sought to do uh, to the LGBTQ 
community ended up, I think, in a lot of ways, helping the community unify and uh, helping people who were not politicized, who were maybe just in it to be free and enjoy a party and looking to enjoy their lives, um, became politicized through her aggression or in response to her aggression. And Harvey Milk was a unifying force um, in his opposition to Anita Bryant and John Briggs. Sure, um, absolutely. So in a, in a way, I think that, um, it's funny, when I think about it, the AIDS era and the gay lib era of the 70s feel so different, but really it's a matter of um, a couple of years. The first cases of HIV AIDS were in 1981. Uh, the white night riot that we're talking about was 1979. So it was right around the corner. Right, not too far away. And I had my first child in 1980. Wow. Mm -hmm. In 79, well, no, it was already 80. I walked in the Pride Parade pregnant um, with, I think I wore a button that said, "Don't how dare you presume I'm heterosexual or something. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just to personalize the context. So there was a lot of foment at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of strong statement. And then, of course, with AIDS, um, lesbians were less likely to contract and less likely to be afraid of, of um, being the nurses on those wards, you know, wanted someone to show up. So a lot of nurses I knew worked on AIDS wards, mm -hmm. lesbian, lesbian nurses. Um, so it, it really, things, things shifted in that time, I've, mm -hmm. I've got I've to say you know, really in a huge way. Of course, that's the theme of this, this show, how terrible, um, terrible events, and we're talking kind of larger than the personal, but also the personal, um, often surprisingly have things come out of them. Uh, we wouldn't make the trade if we got the choice, but right. that is in fact <laughs> what, what happens, um, that some people and some movements find a way forward that's very powerful. Absolutely. So let's let's take our second break and then come back and talk about all of this some more. And uh, listeners, again, during the break, you can go find me at weatherandgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. There's links to everything there. There's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them. And to find Alia Volts, you can go to aliavolts.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. 
Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been speaking with Alia Voltz about her book, Home Baked, and uh, I, I feel that the next thing to really dive into, Alia, is, is um, the, the last of the things we've mentioned, AIDS, and how that affected our community. And I don't just mean, um, you know, LGBTQ people. I mean the San Francisco Bay Area, <laughs> you know, because we had such a high uh incidents there were so many people dying yeah and for much of the crisis uh the san francisco bay area had the highest concentration of hiv infections in the western world and it's a small city uh, so you really felt that absolutely and then there were you know things that didn't show up in the statistics for instance um uh, a gay man donated for me to have my first child his partner, uh, she was born in 1980. His partner, when she was maybe five or six, uh, was tested HIV positive. He's still living. But um, her father really went downhill and his health fell apart and he died when she was 11. Aww. And I connect those events. Yeah. Um, so there are all of those, you know, less uh, obvious stories that do connect to what was going on then uh, <laughs> that that um, maybe people people don't carry an awareness of but uh, there was there was one part that uh, in your book where you were talking about just the amount of beautiful things with nowhere to go Mm-hmm. people left there is some reason that just really impacted me uh, yeah <laughs> it it did it did for me too i actually met the person who told me that story very randomly in a bar and i was sitting there at the bar and just bawling my eyes out um <laughs> as he told me that story but i was very much a child of of the aids epidemic so many of my mom's close friends who to me were surrogate aunties and uncles who i'd known my whole life uh, again, connections through the Sticky Fingers world, um, were, were affected by this. We lost a lot of, of loved ones, as anyone who was here and connected to that community did. Um, so in a, in a very big way for me, this book is in memoriam um, to people I knew as a child. I'll, I'll read a, a section about, about that. Yes, please. 
I remember the dismay I felt as a child at seeing loving couples who'd been together in my earliest memories split in half. Barry lost Gino, his musical collaborator and life partner. Sean lost his beautiful Abel and never got over it. Decades later, he still goes into seclusion for weeks around the anniversary of Abel's death. My mom often describes the phenomenon of the last man standing, how out of a big group of close friends, there would be one guy left, left alive to carry all the memories, all the guilt. It's just, you know, difficult, says Lou Briasco, a longtime Brownie customer, because I didn't expect to be here now. Lou was diagnosed HIV positive in the mid-1980s and thought for sure he was a goner but he survived and kept surviving while the people in his social circle died. He says he's lost more than 50 friends to AIDS. That number seems to be common among the survivors I know, 50 loved ones dead. Problems arose that you might not imagine, like the superabundance of stuff, antiques and knickknacks passing from friend to lover to friend, collections growing exponentially as more people died. The last man standing would find himself buried beneath an avalanche of keepsakes. When Wayne Whelan arrived in San Francisco in 1986, he was amazed at the quality furniture and antiques abandoned in dumpsters and on street corners. In need of cash, he began collecting and reselling found treasures at flea markets. Among his new neighbors was Val Duval, an occasional drag performer who ran a chaotic custom dress shop out of his, I'm sorry, out of his cluttered home. Wayne rented a window in Val's space to sell some of his antiques and the two became close. When Val's health gave out, Wayne helped nurse him through his painful last weeks and ended up inheriting the shop, which he renamed Therapy. Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> For years, Wayne gathered and sold the beautiful trinkets and stylish furniture left behind by the dead, eventually moving into a larger space on Valencia Street. Some objects passed through therapy multiple times when customers who bought them also succumbed to the plague. At estate sales, Wayne would find himself staring at the particular mementos kept at bedsides near the end. Why? this button or this teacup, he'd wonder. What was important about this? A day came when Wayne couldn't take it anymore. His store was full of ghosts, everything saturated in heartbreak. He gave up on antiques and switched to new merchandise. Uh, and Bay Area people will know therapy. It's still a successful store with multiple branches today. You know, there's a great book. I'm forgetting the title right now, but uh, it's about what to do with uh, objects after your loved one dies hmm. and what's standing in. Uh, there are a couple of good books about that, but this one, the woman's husband died when she was very young, 31, I think, hmm. and she had never been sentimental about objects. And after he died, she couldn't move his shoes from by the door yeah right <laughs> you know so that sense of being buried under under these meaningful but too many objects uh is so understandable to me um that these were people that were associated with these with, with these things yeah uh, and 
um, you can't keep them all, but what you do, what do you do with them? And, you know, it's just a very complicated grief process. Yeah. And, and, you know, during the epidemic, it was just the sheer numbers were overwhelming. People would, people would go to funerals every weekend, sometimes multiple funerals in a weekend. And at that, at that rate, at that mass level, the grieving process changes. How do you process? How can you process all of that? Um, there's, an, I think, a numbness that set in for a lot of people, and um, that evolves into post-traumatic stress. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's also, again, as we were talking about earlier, how grief becomes activism, um, the changes that emerged out of the AIDS activist era, I th we continue to feel today, everything from uh, same-sex marriage, <clears throat> which, um, which I would say had a, had, has very strong ties to the AIDS era. Yeah. I mean, how well, in terms of rights, I mean, that's when the, right. the conversation about why rights mattered, right, really became uh, loud, <laughs> right? How dare you say we're not married? I just how dare you not let me in the room right. when my person is dying? You know, th those kinds of bottom line places. Yeah, for sure. Right, right. It, it strips down to, to what really is important. And one of, and, uh, uh, one of the main points of my book and, and a, big, a, big part of this, oh, a big part of this whole topic for me is that I feel strongly that we would not have the kind of access that we have to marijuana medical marijuana or recreational without the AIDS epidemic. Because during the 80s, most medical marijuana activists were also AIDS activists. And the, the co-author of Proposition for 215, which was the first medical marijuana uh, legislation in the country, was Dennis Perone. Uh, was a close confidant to my mom's and a, and a colleague. But he had recently lost his lover of 10 years to AIDS. And the two of them were arrested together uh, in a very late stage in, in, his, in his partner's illness. And it was a major motivational, um, a major source of motivational energy for him to, to keep fighting and to fight harder and make sure the legislation would change so that people wouldn't have to go through that in, indignity for accessing their medication. And I know from personal experience how much that can fuel you when you're doing something in honor of somebody. Right. Uh, you know, that's that's my life. <laughs> Here I am doing that right this minute. Mm -hmm. uh, it it really keeps you fueled, um, and so that that um, aspect made so much sense to me when you've seen it help. As I did, my my wife, it was still very much illegal, but she used it when she'd do chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And her her comment was always, I can't believe I used to do this on purpose, but <laughs> <laughs> it did help quite a bit, uh, you know. And so that, to to have seen the easing of suffering and then face the, um, the, irrational, mm -hmm. completely irrational defense against people having access to that. I can see how that would have fueled him very much. Mm -hmm. uh, Hello? Oh, yes, I'm still here. <laughs> oh. 
see, I'm sorry. It seemed as if, as if we'd lost each other for a moment. <laughs> um, yes, I, I think that's, I think that's very much true. Um, the, the access became important in a way that couldn't be ignored. And for the medical marijuana movement, which prior to AIDS was really fledgling and very small, um, there are, of course, other uses for it. Uh, but the desperation among this populace who, again, didn't have an effective treatment for the first 15 years of the, this deadly epidemic. And here's this here's this low impact, relatively harmless, low side effect uh, substance that makes them feel a little better. It wasn't going to cure AIDS, but here we have people who are, who can't eat, who can't get through the day because of pain and nausea and vomiting, and this helped. And so to, to not only deny that access, but confront people who were, using, who were using it for that with legal repercussions to drag dying people to jail uh, was and unconscionable even outside of the AIDS community and outside of, of the medical marijuana community. It changed public sentiment. And now we barely talk about the AIDS years anymore in relation to cannabis. And that is one of the reasons that I wrote this book because I felt like there was a kind of erasure going on and considering that the erasure had been going on even while it was happening when people were so reluctant, politicians were so reluctant to discuss AIDS. Um, it's a double insult. <laughs> and, and also in terms of, you know, just the context we're, we're in now. And um, I, I'm, I am an optimist by nature, but uh, it's been challenging to be an optimist <laughs> right now, right, lately. Oh, <laughs> I have to admit, it's been very difficult. So the closest I can get at the moment is the long view. Mm -hmm. That there are people right now uh, that watch that video of George Floyd whose, whose denial was broken. Mm -hmm. You know, at least for that moment. There are people at that time who saw this is wrong yes. to put these dying people. What what's the danger of marijuana that they're going to die? <laughs> you know, um, right. that that at that moment people saw things differently, which of mm -hmm. course is the basis of all human change. I guess absolutely. Um, and you know, it is it is hard to say as someone who grew up again during the AIDS era and within ensconced within a community that was so harmed by it. Uh, of course, there's trauma associated with seeing people you love suffer in that way. Um, Absolutely. And there's no, no one in their right mind would say that it was good that this happened. And yet at the same time, when I think about the AIDS years, what I think about first is the bravery and the compassion, the empathy between people. There were so many positive lessons to be learned uh, in that terrible time. And that's something that we can carry forward with us along with the rage and the determination to change the political sphere. That is such a great place to end for the day, Alia. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. They're parallel tracks. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't trade, as I said, but um, hopefully we, we travel both paths. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you, too. You can find Alia at aliavolts.com. Next week, I'll have Sean Perry. He is a uh, 
person who works with youth around trauma and mental health uh, and is particularly active right now, as you would imagine. And we're going to have a conversation about Black Lives Matter and uh, what's going on in the world right now. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.